Well, this morning's message is going to be a little bit unusual, and it's because our text this morning is a little bit unusual. I'll be spending a fair bit of time in the beginning of my message this morning explaining some of the background issues related to our text that are really important. So I want you to please hang in there with me, and with God's help, I'll get us all to the outline and then the finish line. When it's all said and done. All right. Will you take your Bibles? Turn along with me to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. It's where we find the Lord's Prayer. Verses 9 through 13 of Matthew 6. We have seen that Jesus has been teaching a master class on prayer. He's taught us to pray in this way. To pray along these lines, to pray after this general pattern, to pray this kind of prayer. And that pattern, as we have seen, begins with God as the priority and center of our prayers. Of the six petitions of this prayer, the first three deal with God and His glory. And so this prayer, this model prayer, teaches us to rightly order ourselves in the universe under God and His glory first. And so Jesus teaches us to seek first God and His righteousness, His kingdom, before seeking our own physical needs or any other needs that we might have. We've seen that this model prayer teaches us much about God. It teaches us that He is our Father as we cry out to Him, Our Father In relational terms, he is both near and dear to us. There's no more accurate or intimate term that could be used to describe his relationship with us and our relationship to him than our father. He is our loving father and we are his beloved children. But it also teaches us that he is our father who is in heaven and therefore he is transcendent and deserving of our highest respect honor, and worship. It teaches us also that his name is to be hallowed and treated as special and set apart, treated as holy and not taken in vain. This prayer teaches us that God is a ruler over a kingdom that is already present but not yet in its final form. It teaches us that God's will is always done in heaven and that we are to seek to do his will while here on earth. This prayer teaches us that God is the provider for all of our physical needs, including life and breath and bread and all things. It teaches us God is the source of all forgiveness of sin. It teaches us that God is the sole source of our strength in the face of temptation and that he is our deliverer from evil. And this morning, as we will see, it teaches us that God possesses a kingdom, power, and glory, and that these are his possessions forever. Not only does this prayer teach us about God, who he is, and what he does for us, but it can also teach us a bit about ourselves. Charles Spurgeon observed that this prayer teaches us the following about the Christian in relationship to God. Our Father, which art in heaven, teaches us that we are children away from home. Hallowed be thy name teaches us that we are worshipers first and foremost. 
Thy kingdom come teaches us that we are royal subjects. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven teaches us that we are royal servants of the heavenly king. Give us this day our daily bread teaches us that we are but beggars. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors teaches us that we are sinners in need of forgiveness. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil teaches us that we are sinners in danger of being greater sinners still. In our text this morning, we come to the end of this model prayer in verse 13. The New American Standard Bible reads this way. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. What a fittingly worshipful end to what is without doubt the greatest prayer. But some of you may be noticing that you don't have this ending to this prayer in your Bible. At least not in the main part of the text. If you have an English Standard Version or an NIV, your Bible probably has a footnote or something in the margin saying something like, Some manuscripts... Add, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. My New American Standard Bible has the text included in the main text, but it has this text in brackets with a marginal note that says this clause not found in early manuscripts. So what's going on here? Was this part of Jesus's model prayer or not? And if not, should we be including these words in our Bibles? Should we be including these words when we pray? Should we be including these words when we recite the Lord's Prayer together? We're going to try to answer all of these questions this morning. But before we do, I want, to, I want you to hear what R.C. Sproul had to say about these words that come at the end of the Lord's Prayer. He says this, as I studied for this particular sermon on this text, I examined no fewer than 10 commentaries and was astonished to discover that not a single one of them included more than two sentences about the conclusion to the Lord's Prayer. I was stunned by this lack of attention because I think this is one of the most important portions of the Lord's Prayer, if not the most important portion. Well, with the Lord's help, we're going to give these closing words the attention they deserve this morning. So, let me read for you the Lord's Prayer once again, one last time, as we conclude this series this morning from Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13. Jesus says, Pray then this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us in temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord God, teach us what you have for us this morning. Show us, Lord, that we can trust your word that it is a sure and steady guide for us, that it is light upon our path, that you have preserved it for us and that you have so blessed us wonderfully with 
myriads of copies of the Bible in our own homes, on, on our phones, and in our tablets, and on our computers. And Lord, we are so blessed with an abundance from you, particularly as it comes to your word. Lord, teach us your word today. May we glean from its truth, Lord, truth about you, truth about our Savior, Jesus Christ. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now, unlike the rest of the Lord's Prayer, our text this morning that comes at the very end of verse 13, this last phrase of verse 13, is in dispute. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now, what's in dispute is not the truth of that phrase, but whether that phrase was actually uttered by Jesus or not, and whether or not Matthew included it originally in his gospel or not. It is not included in Luke's gospel, in his version of the Lord's Prayer. Many biblical scholars are not certain that these final words were originally uttered by Jesus on this occasion, and therefore they're also not certain that these words were originally part of Matthew's gospel. In fact, most scholars are fairly certain that these words are not original, but are a slightly later addition to the text. So what's going on here? How did these words get here? And if this kind of thing is happening here in this verse, how can we be sure it's not happening all over the place in the Bible? Well, let me assure you, these disputed passages are not happening all over the place in the Bible. Let me assure you that there are only a few questionable texts like this in all the scriptures. The most significant of these disputed passages are the present one here in Matthew 6, the last several verses of Mark's gospel, and then there's the story of the woman caught in adultery in John's gospel in John chapter 8. Actually, it's chapter 7, verses 53 through 8, verse 11. And that's really it. The rest of the things that are in dispute are very small issues of spelling or word order. But how did these passages come to be disputed in the first place? How could this happen? Well, in the days before printing presses and copy machines, all copies of documents were made by hand, obviously. And that includes the copies that were made of the original autographs of the biblical writers. Copies of copies of copies of copies. There's a cat. <laughs> Usually it's a squirrel. Some of you have observed that through the years. Well, that's a first. <laughs> copies were made. Making copies. Copies of copies. And these copies of copies of copies were painstakingly made over the course of millennia. And in the process of copying and recopying the scriptures, sometimes small mistakes creeped in. For instance, the proper name Christ Jesus could understandably 
be miscopied as Jesus Christ. Now, does that affect anything of substance? No. One can see how Christ Jesus might become Jesus Christ as one is copying these things. Do you ever make mistakes when you're copying something by hand? Well, you know the scribe's challenge then is to accurately record what is before him. Sometimes these innocent mistakes in copying were then copied once again and on and on so that eventually you have different textual families emerging that can be identified in part by these slight differences, these slight variations that exist between the various manuscripts. In the vast majority of cases, these discrepancies involve less than a few words and they're of no great significance. Passages that contain longer disputed texts could have happened for a variety of reasons. Oral tradition was common then, and people would pass down stories, and sometimes some of those stories or uh, extensions would be written in a marginal notation, and somehow got added into the text along the way. However it happened, these minor differences and scribal errors and variant spellings and disputed passages make up less than 1% of all the Scripture and of less than 1% that is in dispute. And of these passages that are in dispute, they are in no way significant in terms of their teaching or no major doctrine hinges on them. No major doctrine is in any way jeopardized by any disputed text. This means that over 99% of what we have in the Bible is beyond any dispute and completely accepted as being what was in the original writings. Now, some people get worried about disputed passages like these. Perhaps this issue may even erode their confidence in the trustworthiness of Scripture. But it shouldn't. As we have already seen, these disputed passages and other differences between the existing manuscripts make up less than 1% of our Bible. You see, as Bible-believing Christians, we believe in the inspiration, inerrancy, and sufficiency of the Bible. That means we believe that the original documents or autographs of the Bible were inspired by God, were breathed out by God, so that the Word of God is just that. It is the Word of God. 2 Peter 1.21 says, No prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17 says, All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So the Scriptures are inspired by God, and the Scriptures are sufficient to teach, reprove, correct, and train us in righteousness. Because the Scriptures are God-breathed and because God can't lie, this also means that the inspired Word of God is also inerrant. It is without error in the original writings. And that's exactly what our statement of faith says. The statement of faith of this church says that the original writings are without error. Now, that last bit is really important. Without error in the original writings. The doctrine of inspiration 
and inerrancy applies to the original autographs, the original writings of Scripture, and only to the original writings of Scripture. So the Bible is inspired by God and inerrant in the original writings. When Paul wrote Romans, the letter to the Romans, that was inspired and that was inerrant. But let me assure you that these translations of ours are not inspired and they are not inerrant in the same way that the original autographs were. Yet they are trustworthy. The King James Version, the New King James Version, the English Standard Version, the New American Standard Bible, and others. These are trustworthy translations. Now, not all translations are created equal. Some of these translations are better than others, but none of them, not even the best of them, are inspired or inerrant. But they are trustworthy. The Bible you hold in your lap right now or have on your phone or your tablet are completely trustworthy copies of the original autographs that were written thousands of years ago. Even the most hardened, critical, unbelieving scholars agree with this. The Bible is the most widely attested and accurately preserved ancient document in existence, and it's not even close. We can have far more confidence in the integrity and accuracy of our Bibles than we can have in any other ancient work. We have far more ancient copies, far closer to the time of the original writings than any other ancient work. You see, no one says, can I really trust my copy of the Iliad by Homer? Or can I really trust that these are the words of Pliny in his natural history? No one says that. Scholars are agreed that the Iliad and the Odyssey are just what Homer actually wrote. But many people do say, with these disputed passages, how can I really trust the Bible? They say this about the Bible, even though we have far more and far stronger textual evidence for the Bible than we do any other ancient work. And there's a chart that's going to come up behind me that's going to show you that. I've included this chart also in the sermon notes section of the church app so you can see it there take it home with you examine it later but those who say how can i trust the bible never say this about the words of homer or Pliny or caesar methinks there may be another issue at play They don't particularly like what the Bible has to say, so they treat it differently than they would any other ancient text, even though the Bible has far stronger textual integrity than any other ancient text. So the bottom line is this. You can trust your Bible. You can trust that your Bible is the Word of God. If you've understood nothing else of what I've said so far, and that may very well be, the cat's the best thing that happened today. You can, if you believe nothing else, believe this. You can trust your Bible. You can trust that when you're reading your Bible, you are in fact reading the Word of God. The God who inspired the writing of the original documents and ensured their inerrancy through the human authors who wrote them is also able to preserve this Word and ensure that it gets to us intact. 
Now, having said that, what are we to do with these words that come at the end of the Lord's Prayer? Well, we should tread carefully. We certainly do not wish to add to God's word what shouldn't be there, nor do we wish to be found guilty of subtracting from God's word what shouldn't be there, what he intended and included. And so we have the sober warnings that, warnings that come to us at the end of the Bible in Revelation chapter 22. Listen to this. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. This is serious business. We should tread carefully. We treat God's word with respect and honor that it deserves as being the very word of God. So we tread carefully. We tread respectfully. And yet we tread wisely. We understand that we live in a fallen world. And that every realm of human endeavor has been affected by the fall. Right? That even includes the process of copying God's word. That was in certain ways also affected by the fall. To err is what? Who did the copying? Humans. There will be scribes who at times will make mistakes in their effort to accurately copy the scriptures. While it may be likely that these words weren't originally part of what Jesus said or part of what Matthew wrote, nevertheless, there remains the possibility, no matter how remote, that these words were indeed original. That is still a possibility. We think we know. We think we're so smart. When you add to this the fact that these words are true and are in no way contradictory to anything else we know the scriptures to teach, we would be wise not to reject these words out of hand. What we do know for certain is that a form of these words were included in the didache. Now you may never have heard of that. The didache was an ancient teaching document that the early church used. It's not scripture. Okay, don't, don't hear me say that. It is not one of the books of the Bible. You will look in vain in your Bibles to find the didache. But it is an ancient teaching document that the early church used, and it can be dated to as early as 100 AD. Pretty early. So already by then, these words of doxology were commonly known and commonly said together. It's included there. So it seems likely that this ending was adapted from other doxologies in Scripture, particularly from David's prayer in 1 Chronicles 29, as he gave thanks to God for the people's generous offerings to help build the temple. Let me read 1 Chronicles 29, 10 through 11. You can remove that slide now. 1 Chronicles 29, 10 to 11. So David blessed the Lord in the sight of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory. Sound familiar? And the victory and the majesty, indeed everything that is in the heavens and the earth. Yours is the dominion, O Lord, and you exalt yourself as head over all. 
It is possible and even likely then that as Christians recited this prayer together in the early days of the Christian church, as they gathered together as the church and recited the Lord's Prayer, as we know that they did, that they added this rich and true doxological ending that we have today in verse 13. Jewish prayers often ended with a doxology. It would be odd and strange for a prayer like this to end with deliver us from evil. And that's it. And so, in seeking to liturgically share in this prayer together, sincere, devout Christians added a doxology to the end of the prayer. Perhaps this doxological ending was included in the margins of their early copies of Matthew's gospel. And at some point, this doxological ending made its way from the margin into the main text itself. What is clear is beyond dispute. Christians have been reciting the Lord's Prayer for millennia. And wherever they have, they have almost universally included these closing words of soaring praise. As John MacArthur states, although they may not have been in the original account, the words are perfectly fitting in this passage and express truths that are thoroughly scriptural. Craig Blomberg adds this affirmation as well. The doxology affords a very appropriate conclusion and no one need campaign to do away with its use in churches today. Christians regularly and rightly utter many things in prayer that do not directly quote the autographs of Scripture. So with all of that as a backdrop, that's my introduction. (laughs) All of that as a backdrop, as we consider these closing words of doxology, I want us to see together this morning that they provide us with three reasons for confidence in prayer and for constancy in praise. Three reasons for confidence in prayer and for constancy in praise. I say there are three reasons for confidence in prayer because that's how this doxology is stated. Notice it says, for yours is the kingdom. This is the reason. This is the reason why we can pray these things in confidence. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And that gives us confidence. We pray with confidence because God is who he is. He is the possessor of all rule. He is the possessor of all power. And he is the possessor of all glory. We can trust that God is able to deliver us from all evil because these things are indeed true about him. And as these three truths about God strengthen our confidence in prayer, they also increase our constancy in praise. This is our God. He is the all-sovereign, all-powerful, all-glorious God who invites us to call him Father. And so as we recite it together as a church, when we come together, this model prayer ends just as it began with praise to God. 
Listen to what Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones observed about these final words. What can one say after facing such a prayer and such words? There must be a kind of final thanksgiving. There must be some sort of doxology. As we consider our needs, our dependence upon Him, our relationship to Him, we cannot stop by saying, deliver us from evil. We must end as we began by praising Him. And that is good and right to do. So here we go. Three reasons for confidence in prayer and for constancy in praise. I told you we'd get to the outline. It has arrived. Here we go. The first reason for confidence in prayer and for constancy in praise is because God possesses all rule. For thine is the kingdom. We can have confidence in prayer and we can grow in constancy in praise because God possesses all rule and authority. Yours is the kingdom. God possesses the kingdom. What is the kingdom? Well, in the scripture, there's several different understandings of kingdom. But what I think it means here is capital K, kingdom. As in everything. Everything outside of God is his kingdom, his domain. Yours is the kingdom. He owns everything and he rules over it all as its sovereign. Again, the prayer of David after which this doxology was likely patterned gives insight here. First Chronicles 29, 10 through 12. Listen again what David prayed. David blessed the Lord in the sight of all the assembly. And David said, blessed are you, O Lord God of Israel, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and on earth, yours is the dominion, O Lord. And you exalt yourself as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand is power and might, and it lies in your hand to make great and to strengthen everyone. That's a God who's in charge. That's a God who rules over his kingdom, which is everything. And you know what everything includes? It includes you and me. God is the great king And the kingdom he rules over is everything that he has made. Everything that is. Everything that exists outside of himself. He planned it all. He created it all. He sustains it all. And he rules over it all. Such a God who has all rule and all authority can answer our prayers and is certainly worthy of our praise, right? He's in charge. And you get to go to him. And as a Christian, Call on him as father. That should increase our confidence in prayer. First Timothy 1.17 says, Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Are you rightly related to the king today? God the King, the only way to be rightly related to God the King is to be rightly related to His Son, Jesus Christ. It's to acknowledge that Jesus Christ is indeed the Son of God and that He was sent on a mission of love and rescue for you.
And to believe that he has indeed paid the price for your sins on the cross, bearing your guilt and bearing God's punishment for your guilt there on the cross. Trusting in Jesus Christ alone places you in right relationship to the king over all. God is the great king, ruling over his kingdom. And this should give us confidence in prayer and constancy in praise. Secondly, second reason to have confidence in prayer and constancy in praise is because God possesses all power. He not only possesses all rule, he possesses all power. We can have confidence in prayer and we can grow in constancy in praise because God possesses all power. God is omnipotent. He is unlimited in power. He is infinite in strength. He is, after all, the Almighty. Jeremiah 32, 17. I love this interaction between Jeremiah and the Lord. Jeremiah 32, 17. Jeremiah says, Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you. Do you believe that today? Is anything too difficult for the Lord? Are his arms too short? Is his hearing too weak to be able to hear you? No. Jeremiah 32, 27, this is the Lord himself. Just a few verses later in that same chapter of Jeremiah 32, the Lord says, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too difficult for me? Answer, no. We used to sing a song as kids in Sunday school. Nothing is too difficult for thee. Nothing is too difficult for thee. Oh, great and mighty God, great in power and mighty indeed. Nothing, nothing, absolutely nothing. Nothing is too difficult for thee. That's true. Thank you. Yeah, the cat was better. All right. Because this is the God to whom we pray, he can do anything that is in accord with his will. Can God create a rock so big he can't lift it? Stop talking such foolishness. God has the power to do anything that is within his will. He has all power to answer our prayers and do what seems to us to be the impossible. And this too is reason not only for confidence in prayer, but for constancy in praise. This is your God. And he says, come to me and pray and address me as Father. Thirdly, third reason, because God possesses all glory. We can have confidence in prayer and we can grow in constancy in praise because God possesses all glory. God is glorious. To state that God is glorious is to say that the sum total of all that God is, is glorious. It encompasses everything that he is, and it is glorious. His uncreated being. He is the uncaused cause of all things, right? He is God, the uncreated one. He is self-sufficient. He doesn't depend on us. He doesn't need us. He doesn't look to us to meet his needs. 
He is self-sufficient. He is omnipotent. He has all power. We've seen that already. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere all the time. He's holy. He's perfectly loving and perfectly just. All that God is, is glorious. And thus he possesses. It is his own. It is who he is. He is all glory. It was this same divine glory that Jesus himself possessed in his incarnation. Jesus did not empty himself of deity. Not at all. John 1.14 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. This glory was always present in Jesus, in His human form, although it was mostly veiled in His flesh. Remember that moment on the Mount of Transfiguration when Peter, James, and John got a glimpse of the reality of who this person is, this Jesus. John, or rather Matthew 17, 2 says that Jesus there on that mountain was transfigured before them. He was changed before them. The veil was pulled back and Jesus' face shone like the sun and his garments became as white as light. As Jesus anticipated going to the cross, As a sinless substitute for sinners, he prayed this, anticipating the display of his glory on the cross as he died in the place of sinners. John 17, 1, he says, And lifting up his eyes to heaven, Jesus said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son. That the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, so that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. You want to have eternal life? It comes through knowing Jesus Christ as the Son of God and Savior of the world. Jesus continues there. He says, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you've given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. God is the only perfect being, the only uncreated being, the only self-sufficient being, the only all-powerful being, the only sovereign being. And as such, He is the only all-glorious being. This too gives us confidence in prayer and causes us to grow in constancy in praise. Because God possesses all glory, He is worthy of all glory. So one of the great cries of the Reformation was soli Deo Gloria. Glory be to God alone, even as we have sung today. The ancient hymn, the Gloria Patri. We don't sing that one around here. We should. The Gloria Patri of the 6th century has been recited and sung by Christians for centuries. Goes like this Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. World without end. 
That means glory to God forever. All three of these ascriptions are said to be possessed by God forever. They are his possession forever. No one can take them away from him. From all eternity, for all eternity, there was never a time when God did not possess all rule, all power, and all glory. All that God is, he is eternally. These things can never be lost by him. They can never be taken away from him. His rule never declines. His power never diminishes. His glory is never diluted and never fades. His rule, his power, his glory are his forever. This prayer as it has come down to us ends with the final word of affirmation of all that has been said. Amen. It is a word that means surely, or so it is, or so be it, or may God make it so, or may it be as you have said. Amen has been a common corporate affirmation of a truth stated and a corporate agreement in prayer for millennia. First Chronicles 16.36, listen to this. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting even to everlasting. Then all the people said, Amen, and praise the Lord. So you see when I say, and all the people said, there's scriptural affirmation for that. I'll just make that up. And all the people said, Amen. I love what John Bengal said of this whole prayer as he summarized it and all of it leading to doxology to praise he says we may imagine that in heaven all these petitions will be turned into praises for God's name is hallowed his reign has come his will has come to pass he has forgiven us our sins he's put an end to temptation and he's delivered us from Satan And a God who's done all that is worthy of our eternal praise, honor, and worship. How has he done this? How has God accomplished all these things? How has he forgiven our sins? How has he defeated our enemies? How has he provided for our needs? How has he done all this? How can we be sure he'll continue to do all this? How can we be sure he'll answer our prayers? Because thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And all God's people said, let's pray together. Lord, we love your word. We want to treat it with the respect it deserves. But we also understand that this world is a complicated place with complicated processes. And that includes the way we've gotten our Bibles today. Lord, may nothing I've said today erode our confidence in your word, but may it rather strengthen our confidence in your word. Your word is truth. By your word, we learn all that we need for life and godliness. Lord, thank you for leaving us this model prayer, for giving us a guideline, showing us how to pray. We can't do better than praying this prayer. We can't improve upon it. We're foolish if we think we can. So let it continue to guide us, guide our thoughts. Let it continue to serve as a pattern for our praying, calling you Father, 
and all that is packed into that. And moving on then to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness before seeking anything for ourselves. Affirming the truths of of who you are and what you've done for us. Longing, Lord, that your name may be hallowed, that your will may be done. Lord, we pray that you would give us confidence that you will hear our prayer, that we can bring our needs, both physical and spiritual, before you, and you will answer in accord with your will. Thank you, Lord, for being a listening God, eager to hear our prayers, so eager that you taught us how to do it, so eager that you called us to call upon you as Father. Thank you, Father. It's in your name we pray. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.